Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. If you're a medical device professional, what does your EQMS, what's it doing for you? If it's paper-based, I can tell you what it's not doing, and that's helping you accelerate the delivery of your life-changing medical devices to patients who need them most. Paper-based quality management system, it, it always sounds like a, uh, um, almost like an oxymoron. How is your QA team going to achieve true quality if they're still chasing engineers for signatures or searching for the needle in a stack of papers? Greenlight Guru is the only quality and product development platform designed and to support medical device companies throughout their commercialization journey. That's because we're from the medical device industry ourselves. If you're looking to deliver high-quality, life-saving devices to market on an average of three times faster, contact Greenlight Guru today to start the conversation. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is the founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and joining me is familiar face and voice on the Global Medical Device podcast, Mike Drews. Mike is the president of Vascular Sciences. So Mike, welcome back. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. For those listening, Mike and I always try to figure out, you know, what topics are we going to talk about next? And we always try to find things that I I think are, well, sometimes relevant and timely, but other times we try to choose topics that are somewhat evergreen. And I think the topic today is more of those, one of those evergreen type topics. I think this is will be applicable today, but but also, you know, a few months from now and, and probably even several years into the future. So anyway, just thought we'd dive in. And the topic is talking about designing a, an international regulatory strategy and why so many people and companies seem to get it wrong. So, of course, you know, if you've listened to any of our episodes before, you know that, that Mike is a regulatory expert. So, Mike, a great place to start. What is regulatory strategy? Indeed, John, that is a great place to start. And as always, thanks for the opportunity to to talk to you and your audience about this, albeit evergreen, but nonetheless, very important topic. And before we get into international regulatory strategy, let's talk about regulatory strategy. And before I tell you what I think regulatory strategy is, John, let me tell you what I think it is not. One of my frustrations with a lot of folks when I ask them, when I meet somebody for the first time and I ask them, for example, what's their regulatory strategy? They'll say 510K or PMA or de novo or something like that. That is not a regulatory strategy. That's a pathway to market. So a regulatory strategy, and this is actually um, the Oxford uh, Dictionary's definition of strategy, which I like, is a plan of action designed to achieve a major goal or objective. A plan of action designed to achieve a major goal or objective. So a 510K or PMA is your objective, but it's not your plan on how you get there. So that's, I think, what a regulatory strategy is. And just as a reminder, John, we did a podcast. Maybe we can provide a link to it in the materials along with this podcast back in 2020 on how to construct an effective regulatory strategy. And it's one of my more popular podcasts that people have listened to. So in that, for example, I go into in some detail my regulatory strategy uh, executive summary template the different sections that are in there, the device description, the classification, and and so on, so on. And one of the pieces that are in there is the international regulatory strategy component. And that's one of the reasons why 
as we'll talk about today, John, I suggested that this might be a, a good topic. Yeah, it's an evergreen topic, as you put it, but it's a good topic to talk about because at least from my customers, John, I get a lot of questions about international regulatory strategy. And perhaps even more importantly, I, uh, I get a lot of questions from some people about international regulatory strategy. And from other people, I get no questions about international regulatory strategy because they've never heard of it. They've never thought about it. They've never talked about it before. So these are all the reasons why I think regulatory strategy and then international regulatory strategy, I think, is important to talk about. Yeah. And I like what you're sharing about the the pathway. I hope I'm wrong, but I have a an assumption that when a lot of people create what they call a regulatory strategy, they're looking at where in the world can they achieve the fastest path to market. And, and you know, that's loaded in a lot of ways, but they're just, they're, it's very short-sighted thinking because they're just thinking, oh, well, if I go to this part of the world, you know, I, I could probably get to market, you know, in X number of months, but over here, Y number of months, which one gets me there faster? And then they like slap a cover page on it, like, that's my regulatory strategy. And it kind of misses the point a, a great deal. And so why do you think, well, we'll get into that probably in a moment, but well, why is regulatory strategy, like a good regulatory strategy, sound principles to to crafting that regulatory strategy? Why is that so important? I think it's important for a lot of reasons, John. I think most obviously it's important for planning purposes, for budgeting and timing and all that kind of stuff, even on the engineering side. It's important early on as a former engineer, John, you'd appreciate this, identifying the different testing that you have to do, especially testing that's going to require a lot of lead time, like, for example, biocompatibility testing or usability testing. Certainly clinical trials are going to require a lot of time. So regulatory strategy is important for all those obvious reasons. But there are some less obvious reasons why I think it's important as well. For example, in dealing with either investors, uh, VCs or angels, or even if you're working in a in a larger company and being required to present your plan to your senior management to get them to buy in on it so that they will allocate the resources that you can implement your strategy. So it's important for all of those business reasons. Um, one of the things that I get asked to do a lot for my customers, especially small and startup companies that are trying to raise money, is they'll want me to put together a regulatory strategy executive summary so that they can then boil that down into one or two PowerPoint slides that they can put into their pitch deck when they talk to their angels or VCs or when they talk to their senior management in their company to make sure that they you know, present the different options. If you, for example, John, if you go to uh, a VC, ask them to give you a check and they say, oh, John, you sound like you have a great uh, device. What's your regulatory strategy? If you look at them like a deer in the headlights, like you don't know what the heck they're talking about. I don't know about you, John, but to me, if I was on the other side of that desk, I wouldn't be so inclined to sign the check. Yeah. So it's important for a lot of reasons. And then the last reason that I thought I would mention, John, this is a tangent that that you and I have talked about before. Uh, let's not forget my old friend, competitive regulatory strategy, competitive regulatory strategy, not just simply getting your device onto the market here in the United States, or as you mentioned a moment ago, getting it onto the market somewhere else in the world, but doing so in a way that will at the same time create a barrier to entry to your competition Mm -hmm. to make it more difficult for other people following in your footstep. That's what I call competitive regulatory strategy. And I know, John, you and I have talked about this before, and I think we've done some podcasts on this as well. Maybe we can provide some links to those podcasts. But I think these are all different reasons why 
regulatory strategy overall is very important. Is there anything that I'm missing, John, that you would add to that list? I don't know if, if it's something you're missing, but just a couple points that, that stick out to me as, as you were sharing some insights. The first is, I think, the timing in some respects. I mean, I, I think a lot of folks, you know, they, they get stuck in that, that pathway approach, like, oh, we're going to be a 510K, a, a de novo, or in the EU, we're going to be um, a class 2A, whatever the case may be. They're so stuck on that pathway approach. You know, that's what they, they focus on early on or earlier on in development. And and I've seen it happen many times where the development is is, you know, it's it's in the, the, the thick of it in and they're getting into the you know the, the, the verification and validation or some testing or animal testing, or whatever the case may be. And they, you know, sort of revisit, you know, their their regulatory strategy and uh you know, things had diverged or, or you know, the, the regulatory person wasn't connected to the project. And, and you know, and, and now it's like the regulatory person's like, oh, uh, John, you need to do this, 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 because, you know, we've got to address these needs. And it's, you know, discovering those things later in a project, uh, you know, it's going to cause delays. It's going to in- increase cost. Uh, you know, it's going to ultimately affect your go-to-market strategy as well. So I think, you know, the thing that I, I pick up on this is it's important to establish that regulatory strategy on the, I would say very front end. I, I realize you might have to, there's a little bit of chicken and, and egg scenario here, but very, very early on. And to your point, I mean, just every, I think every develop, our medical device being developed has some investor or stakeholder. And now granted, if if you're in a company, you've got to get resources committed but if you're a startup you know you're probably at some point in time going to be looking for some sort of funding to support that and and i think the regulatory strategy a well thought out one a holistic one is going to show to those potential investors that you've got your act together because you know regulatory is is a gate to getting to market for sure and if you haven't thought about all the the what ifs and the different scenarios that's you're going to have a hard time raising those funds and I think, John, you bring up another interesting point in terms of when should you begin to to think about your regulatory strategy or indeed your international regulatory strategy. First of all, it's just like um, uh, other things. It's never too soon, in my opinion, to start thinking about your regulatory strategy. But more importantly, you brought up that it should not be a static document. In other words, you should right. not your, create your regulatory strategy once and then kind of stick it in a file cabinet and never touch it again. It should be very much like your risk management plan, your quality management system, all, you know, all, all the different documentation that you and I have talked about over the years. You should be constantly revisiting it, constantly updating okay. it and document the fact that you've updated. You know, here's a little suggestion on the international side, John. For our audience, maybe periodically, depending on the, the the area of technology that you're working in, maybe once a quarter, you revisit your regulatory strategy plan and see if anything yes. has changed. Specifically, uh, maybe some of the regulatory requirements in different parts of the world may have changed. You know, the the EU, for example, is is going on. You know, undergoing a lot of changes. Although, as we'll talk about, John, I'm reminded of the. French philosopher that said the more things change, the more they remain the same. But nonetheless, these should be dynamic documents. It's not the kind of thing that you just create one time and then you never touch it again. I think that would be a mistake. Yeah, I agree. And 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 you know, not to get too much on a tangent, but you know, one of the 
a design and development plan or project plan or whatever terminology you want to use. To me, you know, a, a project plan needs to be, well, I suppose these could be separate things, separate documents per se, but to me, a, a project plan should be cross-functional, holistic, and, you know, think about all the different areas, not just the engineering perspective, you know, how you going to manufacture, uh, what is your strategy there, regulatory, as we, we've talked about, and so on and so forth. But absolutely, I think a lot of people think, oh, a plan is a, a moment in time thing. I, I do it once and then I don't ever touch it again. But I've every project I've ever worked on, I think this is a true statement, has had something change somewhere along the way. In fact, usually multiple things change. Yep. And anytime something yep. changes, you have to like revisit that your your plan. You might have to revamp that something. At the very least, you need to review it and make sure that those changes didn't impact the rest of your strategy. And I think you and I, John, are sort of paraphrasing what one of the great boxers, I think it was maybe Muhammad Ali, although I could be wrong, who famously said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> so basically what that means is you create a plan, but then you have to adopt that plan. You have yeah. to modify that plan yeah. as you as you continue, or at the very least, you have to revisit that plan and see, does this plan still make sense? Do we Absolutely. need to make any changes? Absolutely. So we've talked a little bit about international regulatory strategy. I mean, is there a difference between regulatory strategy and international regulatory strategy? Yeah, great question, John. So thus far, we've been primarily talking about regulatory strategy in general. So now let's uh, dig into the topic of today's discussion, which is specifically international regulatory strategy. So international regulatory strategy to me, John, and this is just, you know, my Mike Drew's definition. It's not like there's any, you know, standard definitions of these things, but it's nothing more than sort of a global version of the regulatory strategy principles that we've been talking about. In other words, it doesn't just focus on the United States or any one place in the world. It focuses on the entire world. And yeah. why is this such an important thing, John? Very simple. Because a lot of companies, I see this happen so many times, including to some of the largest medical device companies on earth. And when I see it happen to them, I just laugh because it's such an amateur mistake. They can easily avoid it. They bring their device onto the market in one place in the world. Yeah. And then they move on to place number two and they realize that place number two wants a piece of information that that place number one didn't didn't want. Yes. And so now they have to do testing over again. In some cases, they have to do a whole clinical trial all over again. I don't know about you, John, but I hear ka-ching, 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 mm -hmm. you know, and that's such a amateur mistake. So the question is, how do we mitigate or ideally yeah. avoid that? Very simple. Develop your international regulatory strategy. What I mean by that is I identify the first three or four places in the world that you want to bring your, your device onto the market. Please don't tell me that you want to bring your device onto the market on the entire globe, because that just ain't going to happen at one time. <laughs> but identify the first three or four. It could be, you know, US, EU, Japan, Canada, whatever it is, the first three or four. Sure. And then identify uh, or sort of pool their regulatory requirements. In other words, come up with what I call the, the lowest common denominator so that when you do your testing, for example, whether it's benchtop or clinical or what have you, you will have all of the information necessary for all the different places in the world. And you won't have that mistake of realizing that when you move on to place number two or number three or number four, and they want that one piece of information that the others want, now you're going like, oh, you know what? You know, now yeah. we have to scamp around like a bunch of chickens with our heads cut off. Uh, you know, ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. Uh, uh, 
and the last piece of general advice that I would give, John, uh, and then I would love to hear your thoughts on this, and it's not okay. going to be any surprise to you or to, to the audience that has listened to us before, um, is communicate with the regulatory authorities in advance in these different places. For example, here in the United States, consider doing a pre-submission meeting or a pre-sub before or at least as early in the process as you can to make sure that, A, you've identified all of the things that you need to do, and B, the regulatory agency, whether it's FDA or Health Canada or, you know, HSA in Singapore, whoever it is, they see it the same way. Because one of the reasons why, one of the most common reasons why submissions are rejected, whether it's here in the U.S. or anywhere else, is because the company does a certain number of tests and they submit it to the agency and the agency throws it back to them and says, well, we want to see this one or two additional right. tests. Exactly. Once again, John, I just laugh when this happens because it's such an elementary school mistake. It can be greatly mitigated, if not completely avoided, by following some of these commonsensical ideas that you and I are talking about, not just today, but in our conversations yeah. in the past. This is yeah. not rocket science. Does that make sense, John? Yeah. And let me share a sh short story to, to illustrate some of the points that uh, uh, Mike is talking about. So uh, quite a few years ago, uh, I was doing some work for a company. And helping them, you know, get products to market. And I joined kind of in, in the midstream of, of development of their first, actually more toward the latter uh, part of development for their device. And they were um, focused, you know, just on that U.S. I, I think their product, if memory serves, is going to be a 510K submission, uh, probably. I mean, it is the workhorse of, of regulatory app, uh, submissions in the U.S., but I, you know, there was no, never any talk about other markets, you know, which sometimes that's the case, you know, companies are just like, no, we're just focused on the U.S. market. But I started asking questions like, do you have interest in the EU? And they're like, oh, yeah, we do. And like, okay, well, how are you addressing that? And like, well, we'll get to that project after we launched U.S. device. And that just was confusing to me. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. They're like, oh, well, we don't have you know, we'll deal with that later. We don't have time to deal with that. And then, you know, stayed with them through that project, you know, getting 510K clearance. And we started to dive into, into to the European project, which again, I'm still scratching my head. And there was several cases where, you know, the classification was slightly different for their product in the EU. You know, and so it, it, it required uh, different things that the US market didn't require. And I think they weren't going into it like, oh, it's, uh, they, they were making these assumptions like it's going to be the same stuff more or less we just change a label or make our uh, directions for use in you know 12 languages or whatever the case may be but it was way more complicated than that and to your point cha-ching 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 not that they would have got it for free had they thought about it at the beginning but it, it would have been way less expensive because essentially they 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 ended up having to create pretty much a, a variant uh product in order to satisfy the needs of, of Europe. You know, they pretty much had to go back and redo a whole project all over again. And that's just crazy. It's just crazy. I think that's an excellent example, John. Thank you for sharing it. I've seen it myself many times as well, where a company will focus on one place, for example, the United States, and then, you know, they don't even consider the EU or anywhere else in the world until, you know, after the U.S. As we've talked about, I think that's a real mistake. Yeah. A similar example that I would share as I think about it is I have some customers that I've worked with in the past where they will have one 
person or one regulatory consultant manage their U.S. regulatory strategy yes. and another one manage their EU regulatory strategy. That's correct. And in my opinion, wow. John, that's a huge mistake as well, huge. because like the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. And so in those cases, you know, I basically because, you know, me, John, I'm a you know, I'm a pretty straight shooter. I say to the customer, look, that's not a good way to do this. And here are the reasons why right. you have a decision. Uh, either we do this holistically, and if you want me to work on your U.S. Set strategy and somebody else on the EU, that's fine, but I want communication. Absolutely. Or find yourself a new regulatory consultant. Absolutely. Because to me, that's just like you know asking a surgeon to perform surgery with one hand tied be behind right. his or her back, and that's just not a way that I want to do business. So I think the both examples that we just provided are good illustrations to our audience of not just what not to do, but but more importantly, why are the these yeah. these things not such a good idea? Yeah, you know, touching on on the international side of things, let's let's talk a little bit about the EU and specifically. Hopefully, this is not news to anybody listening, but the, the EU MDR is still. I think I put it in the category of new. It's not it's not brand new, but it's newer ish, I guess. But I know that a lot of folks leading up to to the effective date of the MDR. Some companies were like completely pulling out of the European market and all these sorts of things. I'm curious from from your context, how is this new MDR impacting international regulatory strategy? Good question, John. Uh, on one hand, from sort of a pragmatic perspective, it is having an impact. And what I mean by pragmatic, uh, basically the changes that are going into a fact in the EU, in my opinion, are not substantive changes. On the contrary, they're yeah. all trivial changes, you know, in paperwork and processes and so on. So on the pragmatic side, it is causing delays because of the new paperwork, because of the, the delays with the notified bodies. As one of my friends at one of the notified bodies likes to say, these new regulations going into effect in the EU is the greatest source of job security for the whole notified body system that's ever come along. Because uh, the, you know these notified bodies, quite frankly, have more business that they can deal with. So yeah, all of that is impacting uh, international regulatory strategy. And you need to build into your timelines, your Gantt charts, whatever it is, the appropriate time necessary to incorporate those changes. But much more important to me, John, never mind as a regulatory consultant, but as a professional biomedical engineer, there's very, very little, if anything, that has changed in the regulation in terms of what I would do, that the testing of my device, for example, that I wouldn't have done or I've done any differently a few years ago. And so from that perspective, I would argue that these new regulations, and again, I put that word new in air quotes, really is having very little or probably no impact at all when it comes to international regulatory strategy. So again, I don't want to be misunderstood here. I'm purposely trying to separate these into two buckets. One is on what I call the pragmatic side, the, the paperwork, the forms, the processes. Okay, fine. You know, that just keeps the bureaucrats happy. That's just a bunch of you know bean counters, you know, having to justify their job descriptions. But more importantly, you know, from an engineering perspective or from a biological perspective, it's really not having an impact. And, not, and as an aside comment, John, and this is probably not going to make some people in our industry very happy, but uh, I think, quite frankly, it's embarrassing, if not shameful, that we as an industry keep asking for delays and more time to implement these things when they are largely administrative and nothing to do with substance. You know, at the end of the day, and I've said this publicly many times, if these new changes that are going into effect in the EU 
you know, if they don't ultimately lead in five or 10 or 25 years from now to safer and more effective medical devices, then isn't this just simply a colossal waste of time and money? Yeah. And again, I hate to be, you know, so direct, John, but, uh, you know, I'm getting older, so so I call them as I see them, you know. (laughs) But anyway, those are sort of my thoughts, especially how it relates to uh, international regulatory strategy. John, what would you add to the discussion? Well, I tend to agree with you. I think, you know, these these requests for delays or extensions and, and what have you, at least in my from my point of observation is it's usually related to the requester procrastinating and, (laughs) you know, because I mean, regulatory or regulations change at a glacial pace. They don't snap their fingers and, and change from one day to the next. That is, I can't think of any examples in our industry where a regulation was, was, one thing one day, and then somebody decided the very next day is going to be something different. There's always a transition period uh, to, to be able to migrate. Now, I will give you, though, that on the EU MDR side of things, there were there, there have been some logistical challenges with notified bodies and whatnot that, you know, at least a couple of years ago that were concerning and potentially problematic and potentially bottlenecks. But I don't know that we're in that scenario today. So... There is one thing that I would add to my statement a moment ago, you know, as my attorney friends like to say, I reserve the right to change my opinion as I learn more information. So as we talk about this further, John, there is one thing that I would like to add in terms of how does the new EU MDRs impact international regulatory strategy? And that is there's been an ongoing debate. And now most recently in the last couple of years, a resurgence of this debate. If I want to bring my medical device onto the market where in the world do I bring it onto the market first? Right. Here in the United States, in the EU, somewhere else. Historically, and I would love to hear if you agree or better if you disagree, John. Historically, a lot of people thought bring it onto the market in the EU first, because in many ways it was quicker and easier than here in the United States. Now, with the changes in the EU going into effect, I think a lot of people are sort of rethinking that. And it's not as clear or black and white, maybe as it was before. But at the end of the day, to me, it's very simple. The basic principles of safety and efficacy are exactly the same, regardless of what part of the earth you happen to be standing on at the time. In other words, biocompatibility depends on many, many different things. But one thing that it will never depend on is whether you're in the United States or in, you know, France or in, you know, Taiwan or someplace like that. Right. So that's one thing that a company should consider carefully. And, you know, if you want, John, maybe we can do a separate podcast discussion sometime on how do you decide, you know, which country to go to first. The only reason why I haven't really um, suggested that is because, quite frankly, there's so many people that have been talking about that. Um, But I'm sure, you know, you and I could come up with a different spin on it. Well, we probably could. So we'll we'll put that one in the parking lot to to think about later. But I don't have any statement to disagree with you, but but because I've seen the same thing. I mean, I would say, um, well, I mean, as far as uh, global markets for most medical devices, I mean, both the EU and, and the U.S. are comparable in, in population and generally regarded as the, the two largest market opportunities for, for most medical technologies, not all, but most. And so those are almost always on the radar screen. I do agree with you that a few years ago, I think a lot of folks looked at the European model as being, I I would think, 
more finite or more determinate. You know, they have more of a rule-based uh, system to determine uh, product classification. Mm-hmm. It, it's just a different spin in my interpretation. But I think with the complications and the logistics, I, I've seen the same thing happen where a lot of folks are waiting for the dust to settle, so to speak, in the EU and instead shifting their focus on entering the U.S. market first. Yeah, not to get too much into the weeds on this, but, uh, you know, in terms of the differences, the the new regulation that's going into effect in the EU. And again, I'm putting that word new in air quotes because it's really debatable right. what is new. And There's a lot more pages in the MDR than there is an MDD, but you're correct. Yeah, correct. But in my opinion one of the very few significant changes and in my opinion it's a it's a justified change it's a necessary change in the eu is an increase in the post-market surveillance uh requirements absolutely and to be brutally honest with you john and again i'm sure that some of my friends in our industry are not going to be happy with me saying this publicly but i think it's a it's a fair statement a true statement we as an industry and again i'm being very general here stereotyping there are many exceptions but as a general rule we have done an abysmal job Yes, we have. On post-market surveillance across the board. And I could give you lots and lots of examples, which I won't hear, but I'll just illustrate with one. If our industry has done a good job with post-market surveillance in the past, do you think that the post-market surveillance reporting requirements would be increasing, not just in the EU, but in the U.S. and other places? Of course not. So let's just be honest. You know, we we haven't done a good job. The statistics, and again, this could be a topic of a different discussion, but the <clears throat> statistics are not yeah, they're very impressive to say. Yeah, the least. yeah, yeah. Sadly, I think that's what drove a lot of the quote new <laughs> MDR is that post market surveillance. I mean, we won't dive into it today, but folks, you can look into. It. There's a there were a couple of device uh, scandals issues. Uh, and, and that that sort of tr- became the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. But a lot of it is predicated on on the post market surveillance. And to link this back to today's topic of international regulatory strategy, here's another piece of pragmatic device, uh, advice for our audience, John. Because I don't want to just be you know complaining and you know right. bashing. I want to make positive suggestions in terms of developing your international regulatory strategy. Be aware of the changes that are going on in different places of the world, like, for example, the increase in post-market surveillance requirements in the EU, and make sure that you incorporate your into your timelines and your budgets, you know, make sure that you have the resources yes. to implement those changes, to follow those regulations, because uh, I'm not sure what the statistics are in the EU, John, if you know, feel free to share, but I can tell you here in the United States, one of the most common reasons why companies get pinged by the FDA with 43s or sometimes even warning letters is because of post-market surveillance or the lack thereof. That's so great. look at it this way. If you don't want to deal with the problem now, sooner or later, you're going to deal with it you know, later on. Yeah. It's like if you don't take the time to brush your teeth and Day, sooner or later, you're going to be sitting in the dentist chair, you know, and the dentist is going to be drilling, you know, cavities and, and everything else in your mouth. Yeah, so right. what do they say? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure or something like that. It's something like that. And I'm not aware of, of um, the data, the statistics from from EU. And to my knowledge, I don't know that, especially within when you work with uh, notified bodies and auditing organizations from an ISO and an EU perspective, I don't know that they publish that information. So I've always wondered why, um, again, this, this is a tangent, we won't dive into this one, but you know, I, I've always appreciated rather that the FDA is, is 
fairly transparent with the data that they're collecting from you know their inspections and observations and all these sorts of things. And boy, I wish other markets would would follow suit on that. But I digress. Well, not to not to. Not to use too many cliches in today's discussion, John, but what do they say? Uh, sunshine is the best disinfectant. I haven't heard that one. I kind of like that one as the sun pokes out and uh, outside my window. So, all right. So, getting you know, last maybe topic or two, maybe compare and contrast a little bit uh, reimbursement and regulatory strategy, or re- maybe more importantly, reimbursement strategy. Obviously, you know they're. D- depending on where you go in the world, there's there's an influence or an impact from a regulatory go-to-market point of view. But I think a lot of times people forget about or don't think about or, or put enough thought into uh, reimbursement. Or in other words, how are how is somebody going to pay them for their product, so to speak? Yeah, good question, John. So reimbursement strategy is just as important, in some cases, maybe even more important than regulatory strategy. And just like regulatory strategy, we should be thinking about reimbursement strategy as early in the product development process as as possible for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is I've seen it happen several times now. And I think it's going to happen in the future where a company gets their device, say, through the FDA and onto the market here in the United States only to come to find that nobody can benefit from it because nobody can use it because nobody can get paid for it because CMS doesn't reimburse or the health uh, the health insurers, the private insurers don't pay for it. So again, it's a very, very amateur mistake. We have to consider our reimbursement strategy early on. We have to integrate our reimbursement strategy with our regulatory strategy. John, we've talked about some of these issues in other discussions before. In some cases, I've had to actually change my regulatory strategy to match my reimbursement strategy. So you really have to take sort of a a holistic approach. And similarly on the international side, I don't claim to be an expert in international reimbursement strategy. Absolutely not. However, just like here in the United States, it's important to get somebody on your team as early as possible who has a, uh, uh, you know, at least a working knowledge of international reimbursement strategy so that we can be aware of those things now. Kind of like I know, John, you're obviously a big fan of the design controls. And one of the most basic tenets of the design controls says you want to get all the the different people uh, that you need as part of your team from the beginning. That's Uh, that's one of the most basic tenets of the design control. So this is another one of those examples, John, where we don't need more regulation. We've already got, as you alluded to a moment ago, thousands and thousands of pages of that. We need more people understanding the intent of that regulation, the spirit of the law, if you will, rather than the letter of the law, and and applying it here. So those are some of the reasons why I think international reimbursement strategy is important. And I'll give you one quick example, John, and then if you want to chime in, feel free, and then we can wrap this up. I've seen it happen, as I said, a number of times where a company gets a device through the FDA and onto the market, but people can't use it because they can't buy it. So I've had now a few devices, 510K devices, for example, where I was 100% confident that I could get it onto the market without any clinical data. I had no doubt whatsoever about that. However, I also knew that there was not a snowball's chance here in Southern California that CMS would reimburse for that device without clinical data. 
So before going to the FDA to present my regulatory strategy, we went to CMS and we presented yeah. our reimbursement strategy. We 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 got CMS to buy in. This is the clinical data that we're the clinical trial that we're going to do, the number of patients, the number of sites, the inclusion and exclusion criteria, and so on. And then we went to FDA. And before anybody even opened their mouth, I said, here's the clinical trial that we're going to do, the number of people, the number of sites, and so on. I didn't tell them, oh, by the way, FDA. The reason why we're doing this clinical trial has nothing to do with you, FDA, but all to do with your right. your friends up the road at CMS. That's none of their business. I don't need to tell them that. But every single person in the room knew, John, that I could have gotten that device onto the market without any clinical data. So yeah. what did I achieve? I just got myself a ton of brownie points because one of the things that I've learned in being married for a, a number of years now, John, <laughs> is I will take brownie points for whatever reason why I oh, can get them 100%. because sooner or later I will have to cash them. <laughs> So this is an example of not just, you know, why reimbursement strategy is important and integrating it with your regulatory strategy, even, you know, international reimbursement. But it's also another example of how, as I've talked about before, John, I consider this whole thing to be a poker game in every sense of the word. And so, you know, what I enjoy about our discussions, not just today, but in all of our is not just talking about the rules of poker, but actually the strategy strategy to how to how to win the game right makes sense uh, yes it does and and just a couple of reactions so earlier we were talking about the importance of regulatory strategy and and being holistic in your approach and you know especially if you're considering multiple markets for your products and if you don't do that close to the front end how that could be ka-ching 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 well the example that mike just rattled off talking about Speaking with uh, CMS on reimbursement on the front end, had he waited until the product was done and cleared, and because it, it all everything pointed to, you didn't need clinical data or evidence to to get that five ten k clearance. Had you waited until that point to start talking about your regulatory strategy, kaching kaching kaching, right? Actually, I think in that case, John, it would be the absence of. Kaching kaching kaching. <laughs> there would be no cash registers written because because nobody. It would be using your device. Touche. <laughs> and, and that's, I mean, okay, that's the point. Of course, we want to develop devices that are going to improve lives, save lives, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and you need somebody to pay for them so that you can make uh, as many as you possibly can to save and to help as many people as you can. So that reimbursement is important. One other thing I'll say about the regulatory reimbursement topic, uh, I had somebody mention this to me. Actually, I've heard this a few times, but but uh, a couple years ago, where they as, were under the assumption that since both FDA and CMS are both branches within HHS, Health and Human Services, that those two entities are speaking together sort of on your behalf about your product and, and regulatory and reimbursement. Um, they're not. They, they're not. Uh, One would like to make that assumption, John, uh, and I'm hesitant to use this metaphor, but I will anyway. One of the things that we learned, you know, post 9-1-1 is that the, you know, the FBI and the CIA, you know, didn't really talk to one another. So right. why would we assume that FDA and CMS would talk to one another? Now, to be fair, there is more communication 
than there has been in the past. And there have been That's working true. groups. And I sat on a working group years ago to try to facilitate that interaction. I sat on it for several years. I finally got off because you mentioned the, uh, you know, snail space before. If we were in a race with a snail, the snail would have won. You know, that's <laughs> just, you know, our U.S. government hard at work, I guess. But the point is, things, uh, you know, are a little bit better than they were. But for our friends that are listening in this audience, I would not make that assumption. Correct. Uh, if you're in that situation, you know, you have to take the ball in your own hand, so to speak. Correct. Don't don't you know rely on somebody else to to take right. the ball down the field for you. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we've covered a lot of ground. So any um, important points or takeaways that that stick out more than another as we wrap things up today? Well, I think just to quickly recap, John, I think it's important to begin thinking about your regulatory strategy and your international regulatory strategy as early in the product development process as possible. You don't have to come up with a, you know, fully detailed, you know, 300 page plan, you know, but at least, you know, identify the general, the different options that you have, the requirements and so on. And don't just create it once and stick it in a, in a drawer in a cabinet somewhere and never touch it again, revisit that plan periodically, whether it's once a month, once a quarter, you know, whatever, it depends on your situation. Communicate with the regulatory authorities, whether it's the FDA or HSA or wherever you're dealing with, and be aware of the the, the changes that are going on. If you follow these, I'll be the first to admit, most, if not all of this is common sense. But as I've said before, all good regulation should be based on common sense. And if it is not common sense, it is not good regulation. It is yeah. simple as that. Yeah. What else would you add to our list of things to remember from our discussion? Um, I think you hit most of the points that, that were top of mind. I mean, I uh, start early. Start your regulatory strategy early. Uh, don't. I know we focused the conversation today on regulatory strategy. We, we had a, a couple points where we talked about reimbursement. But that's just as uh, important in many cases. So don't forget about that and, and do that early as well. Uh, uh, and you know, it's dynamic, keep revisiting it. So I think, I think that kind of sums it up for me. So, well, Mike, I appreciate the opportunity to dive in on this topic. I, I think, I guess I'll, I'll leave with one final point. If you're still thinking your regulatory strategy is your path to market <laughs> and only your path to market, then you haven't been paying attention to us. So go back and listen again. Um, but amen. <laughs> All right. But thank you. I uh, appreciate the, the opportunity to, to chat with you about this important topic that uh, I think is it's always going to be around in some form or fashion. I, I don't see how you're ever going to avoid the importance of regulatory strategy for the the design and development of medical devices. And unfortunately, John, as you said, it's always been around, but it's also always something that people continuously to screw up. That's why we talk about these things sometimes, unfortunately. But anyway, Mike Drew's Vascular Sciences, as I'm sure you've picked up by now uh, and listening to this episode, certainly a wealth of knowledge when it comes to, I'll say pretty much all things regulatory, especially uh, with respect to med device. And I, I know he does a lot of work in, in other uh, life science industries as well, and, including, uh, I think you do some pharma work and, and some biotech work and things of that nature, but certainly a guy you want to have in your corner. And if you have any questions, you know, certainly reach out to him. So Thank you so much. Um, This is the founder of Greenlight uh, Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Improving the quality of life. I know we say it a lot here at Greenlight Guru, and I'll bet it's something you probably said at your company too. We help babies breathe at night. We give you another day to be a dad. We give you back your eyesight. Those are some of the things the medical device industry and our customers 
are able to say because that's what they're doing. They're improving the quality of life for these individuals. Greenlight Guru is the only quality management software designed exclusively for the medical device industry. We built our software around standards like ISO 13485 and risk-based principles to help you bring safer devices to market three times faster. We're building the tools that will make it easier for you to build yours. If you're ready to find out how to improve the quality of life, contact greenlight.guru today.